0: Welcome back, everyone, to another amazing episode of Market Impact Insights. Our focus today is on board of directors. And this is something for all of you that have worked in businesses of all sizes. You're very familiar, uh, probably, uh, in having uh, overall governance and support from a board of directors. And in this essence, a board is a fiduciary for shareholders and, of course, Every public company is legally required to install a board of directors, but many nonprofits and many private companies also have boards of directors. And we're seeing boards um, get involved in a number of different important aspects of uh, a business's life cycle in setting dividend policies, options policies, of course, very active in the hiring and firing of senior executives, especially CEOs, compensation strategies, helping set overall general company goals, and ensuring that the companies that they serve are equipped with the tools they need to be successful. So that's what the general function is. But the other thing that we're seeing is just continuous evolution, continuous movement. Uh, just as a point in time in 2020, just looking at the S&P 500, we had 413 new independent directors appointed. So you you have new players coming into these boards all the time. And of course, something that's getting increased attention is what is the composition of these boards from a diversity perspective? And a report that just came out earlier this summer from the Alliance for Board Diversity showed that the number of Fortune 500 companies with over 40% diversity on their boards is nearly four times higher than it was in 2010. Now that is good news. The sobering news is that it will take until 2074 when the US celebrates its tricentennial before that number of Fortune 500 board seats held by minorities reaches the ABD's aspirational goal of 40% representation. So progress, but a lot more uh, that is needed and I am So honored to have Janice Harwell joining today to really dive in to what's happening with the whole dynamic around boards of directors. And Janice knows this very well. She served on a number of board of directors, both for Delta Dental of Washington, the Northwest African American Museum, and the Washington Technology Industry Association. Prior to her retirement in 2011, Janice also served as a senior vice president of Intermec Inc. in the Seattle area and also as vice president of a Monsanto-Cargill joint venture called Renaissance LLC in Chicago. Earlier, Janice held senior positions in the legal departments of Monsanto Company and Pacific Telesis Group, and was also a partner in a major San Francisco law firm. So Janice knows all about what it means to serve on a board of directors and a unique perspective on how that role of, of boards has evolved and has continued to evolve as we move forward. So Janice, welcome to Market Impact Insights. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. So Janice, I'd like to always go back uh, when I have guests on the podcast, go back to the beginning of your career and just get some personal reflection. You you started your career, as we mentioned, as a partner in a prestigious law firm before moving over to client-side general counsel roles. But going back to the beginning, what really fueled your passion for a legal career?
1: So I was actually pretty skeptical when I started law school. Uh, and, uh, but ultimately, uh, not very long into that process, discovered the law and economics movement, which was being spearheaded by my law school, University of Chicago. And it was a totally new thing back in the day, in the late 70s, that most uh, practitioners and most judges knew nothing about. Very interesting, fascinating, complicated uh, work. And so I came out of law school with a really strong interest in uh, everything having to do with the intersection of law and business and economics including antitrust law, business uh, regulation by government, and also all the ways in which law helps or undermines uh, the activity of businesses in the economy. Um, And my timing turned out to be fortuitously really good because uh, the year I got out of law school, Reagan was – elected president. And this law and economics thing uh, took off um, with a vengeance. So uh, I happened to know a whole bunch about it at the time when it became a really big thing.
0: Yeah. And and so you started in law firms and then you made the transition to being a senior leader uh, in terms of the legal function in corporate environments. What was that transition like?
1: So, practicing law in outside law firms has many charms, but its perspective on business is quite limited and often impractical. And I wanted to get sort of uh, up close and personal with business operations. Um, moving into the corporate legal departments so, allowed me to see a completely different side of business, whole new ball game. Very interesting. Very exciting. And uh, in the process, I discovered that management needs and wants lawyers who can help them find legal ways of getting their products and services sold and uh, succeeding against the competition. So I uh, used this in-house experience to try to become that kind of partner to the business.
0: And so you made that transition. You're starting to have that kind of impact And what was the inspiration to then start pursuing the board roles?
1: So as I advanced into the C-level, C-suite level type of job, I began spending some years interfacing with boards of directors um, of the companies I was in as general counsel and corporate secretary and also as head of corporate strategy. Um, I saw that the board plays a unique role in corporate governance and can have a big impact positively or negatively on corporate performance. I also saw that strategic thinking, particularly grand strategy, can be a weak spot at the board level. So uh, after some years of, of uh, you know interfacing with uh, boards of directors uh, from the management side, I felt that strategy was an area where I could make a contribution to a board of directors while benefiting from the new perspective that board service would give me.
0: Very interesting. And and we're, we're going to dive in a little bit to more of your perspective and in, in what that initial pursuit and experience was like uh, in a little bit. but. As I mentioned, you know, at the open, which is some of the data points uh, we're seeing evolution in things like composition over the last ten years in boards. But what are some of the other major trends or changes that you're seeing in terms of how boards actually uh, engage and how they operate within these companies?
1: So the um, I think the really big deal at the moment is ESG which stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. Uh, This is a turbocharged version of the old stakeholder theory of corporate governance, which was propounded in the 1970s, but then widely rejected in the 1980s and the 1990s. Um, ESG has now surged back to the top of the agenda in recent years because more and more people understand the massive impact businesses have on society. Um, ESG places uh, social, environmental, and political responsibilities on corporate boards, which are considerably broader than, and often in conflict with the board's legal fiduciary duties to shareholders. So this is a major... And it appears to be a long-lasting development that is probably less than um, roughly five years old. And I expect it to continue uh, for quite a while going forward.
0: So that's a a big one. Are there some other things that you're seeing, uh, just changes in in evolution in in that board-to-company interaction?
1: Uh, I think that... uh, uh, partly based on pressures from the outside uh, boards and management are having to uh, uh, work harder at turning the board into a strategic resource as opposed to just the cop on the beat
0: right mm-hmm. so
1: yeah. there's a you know there's a lot of board work that is really about making sure that management doesn't you know, embezzle funds or, you know, engage in, you know, illegal conduct and that sort of stuff, uh, which is all necessary and it all falls in broadly into the risk management bucket. But uh, the strategic challenges that most businesses are facing these days uh, uh, require um, that the board play a bigger role in uh, helping management set the strategic uh, vision for the company and the strategic direction, and so I think that we're starting to see uh, uh, boards more engaged in and providing greater uh, perspective to management's effort to set strategy for the company. The other, obviously, big thing that this is part of ESG is the whole diversity issue, which you mentioned at the open hmm mm-hmm.
0: now earlier in my career a really popular business book uh was written around this concept of from good to great and mm-hmm. so when we think about boards and we think about what differentiates a great board from just being a good board what are your thoughts on what makes that difference so
1: i think there's three ingredients uh that are kind of foundational to getting to great. (laughs) Um, First, you need a mix of skill sets at the board level, uh, a mix of experience, capabilities, and demographic profiles. Um, Second, every effort has to be made to foster a climate of respect and sympathetic listening at the board level so that directors and management can benefit from the diverse perspectives on the board. Otherwise, you get things like complacency, Mm -hmm. overconfidence, Mm -hmm. myopia, and groupthink, and any one of those can be fatal to the company. Uh, Third, uh, I think directors need to realize that the company is an ecosystem, and it resides in that vast ecosystem called society, right? Um, pretending that a business is operating in a vacuum can have devastating effects on the lives, livelihoods, and liberty of many human beings within and outside of the company. So serious efforts have to be made to keep the cascade effects of corporate behavior in view at the board level so that it can try to prevent, you know, disastrous outcomes, right? Um, so those are I think the three uh, to me these are table stakes you need to get there on these three dimensions in order to have a a shot at being a great company
0: yeah and just to follow on to something I mentioned earlier around just the fact that there's always an element of turnover or introduction of new board members from your experience Janice did, did you find that uh, w- where there was uh, a new board member that entered the picture? Was was that in and of itself? Could that be rejuvenating? Was that an element that could, uh, uh, I guess, on that path from good to great?
1: Yeah, and it can also be destabilizing, right? Yeah, so, yeah. And I think one of the reasons why diversity has been such a difficult uh, nut to crack is that there's a lot of anxiety about uh, picking somebody who uh, cannot make the you know the transition uh, to being a director from whatever they were doing before they got there right and it's a different activity and uh, and also there's a uh, like any team small team uh, trying to get to the place where you uh, uh, where you have developed the relationships the trust, the confidence and the respect uh, that's necessary for a team to work well together is process, right? And I'm not sure that all uh, that either boards or candidates for boards are really prepared for that transition period and have all the tools they need and the attitudes they need to uh, 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 ensure that the uh, onboarding of new directors is successful. But yes, it, 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 when it is, um, new directors, uh, can bring, uh, uh, great new talents, uh, and ideas and perspectives, not just to the board, but also the management. And in particularly when you see a generational right change, or you're getting young people in there who, uh, by virtue of the fact that they're uh, young and have uh, different experiences bring up bring the bring a
0: vision of the future that may be more accurate right to the uh to the board and management that is so true and in just thinking about someone they were stepping into a board role for the first time I there really is no training school right on how to be a board <laughs> member that's the ultimate on-the-job uh, learning isn't it yeah,
1: well, there are courses out there that, you know, purport to do this. Uh, and, and I have to say, just from my own experience, it is difficult to take yourself out of what you already know, right? I mean, it's human to kind of default to uh, to what you already know. And so I think everybody go, is going to go through a period of time where uh, they a- accidentally, you know, fall back into, you know, the lawyer thing, if that was what you were doing, mm-hmm. or the CEO yeah. thing, if that was what you, or the marketing thing, if that's what you were doing. What I, what I think boards need to do is to recognize that's going to happen. It doesn't mean the person is uncoachable. <laughs> you know, you have to take, take, take time to help the person essentially grow into this new role. And insisting that people already know how to do it is another way to shut the board off from uh, that rejuvenation and new blood that it uh, really needs if it's going to uh, get a good perspective on the future. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, let's circle back and let's have a real conversation around diversity, equity, inclusion. Obviously, major attention focus in our society today around that. And as it relates to boards, uh, an impact there, but can you also relate that to your own journey? You know, as you yeah. started pursuing that, uh, what was that like? What is the learning that you've taken from that? Uh, what's the bigger learning perhaps for how we can get to some of these aspirational goals, right? To have true diversity and representation on boards.
1: So this uh, diversity is that is in that governance piece of ESG, right, um, and uh, part of the energy that you're seeing right now around this issue is that voluntary diversification efforts have clearly have not worked, right? And that's true, even though there's plenty of evidence that companies perform much better when their boards have more than token representation of women and ethnic minorities. Um, The failure of those voluntary efforts is why we're seeing state and federal uh, laws and regulations, as well as shareholder demands that companies achieve specific levels of diversity within set timeframes, right? So, um, I think, you know, there's uh, uh, we're on the road here to uh, not quite quotas, but something close to it because Mm -hmm. uh, people were not able to uh, achieve uh, reasonable goals on their own, right? Um, Even then, Dan, uh, I think we can expect that these efforts. will will produce very poor results, unless the chairman of the board and the CEO are personally committed to meaningful diversification of the board. These individuals in these positions uh, have tremendous influence, right? Over, you know, uh, the nomination process and the ultimate selection process. Even, even though the full board is responsible, uh, it's like, you know, every the 80-20 rule applies everywhere, right? And the CEO and the uh, chairman of the board are uh, part of that highly influential, highly impactful uh, 20%. And if they're not with the program of diversity, then you get either... Uh, no success, right, you miss your goals completely, or you get uh, tokenistic solutions like, you know, one woman on a Mm 14-person board or one minority on a 14-person board, that kind of thing. And one of the problems with that is that all the studies show that you need uh, critical mass when you're diversifying. And it's roughly at least three of whatever, you know, new type of person you're bringing on. So three women, three minorities. Um, And the reason is that it's really easy for uh, one or two people who are different from the rest of the board to get isolated and ignored. Right? Mm-hmm. And so, or, or treated as, you know, as a uh, wild card who's uh, on the fringe of the, of the process. And so uh, having critical mass uh, is an important part to getting the benefits of the uh, diverse candidates' uh, knowledge, experience, and insights, right? And so um, in my own personal experience, uh, the personal commitment of the chairman and the CEO of the, of the company, chairman of the board and CEO of the company were absolutely decisive in my appointment to the board and also in the appointment of the women who preceded me and who succeeded me. Right. So um, so you've got you've got these external um Uh, requirements coming at the board to get diversified Um, but the, uh, the real pivot people in the process who can make all the difference in the success or failure of getting what you want out of diversification are the chairman of the board and the CEO and if they can't be brought on board with this whole concept you're going to have, in effect, either no diversification or very ineffectual diversification.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, the difference between uh, doing something at uh, some other sort of mandate or really having true buy-in from the senior leadership in the company, and it sounds like you benefited from having that clear support. And you, yeah. yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And and I was going to say, we also know, and you you mentioned the concept of ESG, uh, that there are these other macro political and environmental considerations in play. Can you share a little bit more about maybe what you've seen or what you see as the opportunity for ESG to continue to shape uh, the corporate governance landscape?
1: Yeah. So a few quick uh, examples are probably the best way to show what a tremendous impact this is having. In boardrooms. Um, one very recent development involves a fossil fuel industry. Uh, you know, en- environmental activists have for a long time been challenging corporate boards and managers in that industry to protect the environment, even at the expense of profits, right? And even at the risk of destroying the business, okay? Uh, now, one would expect shareholders to fight that tooth and nail, right? And I guess, and that was the past uh, behavior. But here, just the other day, Exxon shareholders elected several environmental activists to the board of directors, and they did so over the strenuous objections of management and the existing directors. Big, big, you know, surprise. Okay, Um, I interpreted that outcome as a clash of strategic vision. Uh, Exxon shareholders seem to be telling management and the old board that continuing to pump oil is not a viable strategy for the future in view of global warming. And they were demanding a fundamental change in strategic direction so that the company makes money in some way which is far less damaging to the environment. I'm not sure they have an idea of what that way is, but they're basically telling the company to figure it out, right? Um, When the company failed to make the turn, the shareholders forced the issue by replacing several directors with environmental activists. And this is a development unlike anything we have seen before, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, At the opposite end of the spectrum, the mining company BHP, which is a giant mining company, just executed a strategic pivot for the purpose of avoiding this environmental steamroller, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they sold off their fossil fuel mining operations. They just announced this. And also announced a massive investment in a mine that will produce phosphate for the agricultural industry. So they're shifting from Uh, classic fossil fuel mining, coal, etc., to uh, mining for products that go into the food production business. Now, this occurred under the leadership of a relatively new CEO, and that may have been a big factor in the outcome there. But you can see in this bookend uh, uh, story, you have one company that is trying to stick to the old program, and the shareholders basically are uh, saying that doesn't work anymore you have another company that seems to have gotten the message ahead of you know the steamroller and is trying to uh, migrate into an area where the uh, at least the environmental complaints might be fewer right um, One other uh, area just to mention um, that I think we're going to see, Similar pressure applied is is in companies that are operating in democratic societies that feel that they're threatened by authoritarian initiatives. Um, We know from history that businesses can do really well in an authoritarian environment like Nazi Germany, for example. But people in democracies today are starting to demand that companies support democratic institutions and values. Firms that support anti-democratic politicians and legislation are likely to feel the heat, right, in the form of boycotts, shareholder revolts, and so on. Uh, And that's the social piece, right, of the ESG Mm -hmm. movement. Okay? So... so those are just a few examples of, um, you know, between diversity, the environment, and then this social slash political uh, area uh, of some really powerful trends that I think uh, boards are going to uh, have to grapple with here for the, for the foreseeable future.
0: Really interesting, uh, contrasting examples. Thanks for sharing that. And Janice, we've talked a lot about looking back and and your reflections uh, on your experience serving on boards and as a, a corporate leader. But when you think about the future, what's making you optimistic?
1: So my optimism is based on the dynamism and creativity of young people. When you give them a quality education and instill a lifelong love of learning, they drive tremendous economic growth and improve the standard of living for more people. Um, The multiplier effect is just astounding. So uh, we need to invest as much as possible in the education of our young people. And... um, my sense is that uh, while we need to do better in that area, we're starting to see many uh, important uh, uh, initiatives from that quarter, which um, will uh, help people get to a better place, both economically and socially, over the uh, over the next decades. So I'm, I'm, I think you, you know, the energy of youth combined with the uh, with a proper education, a quality education of young people is a, is a secret sauce for the future, and I'm optimistic for that reason.
0: Unlimited possibilities from the next generation. I love that. So as we start wrapping up our conversation, Janice, any final advice for senior business leaders that are seeking a more impactful relationship with their boards or making a bigger difference themselves as a board member? All right. So, as I mentioned a little
1: while ago, my sense is that corporate boards and senior management teams are underpowered when it comes to strategy, especially grand strategy. Uh, This item tends to get swamped by risk management and tactical issues and, you know, taking your eye off the ball strategically uh, can have really unfortunate consequences for the business and the society. So I recommend that strategists be recruited to the board and into senior management. I also recommend that other members of the board, either individually or uh, collectively take up the study of grand strategy. Uh, there are some really terrific resources available now, and much of it is online so, it's a relatively painless way of uh, starting to get up to speed, you know, in that area. So that's those are my suggestions,
0: for I, folks. I love it. When in doubt, always go online, right, Janice? Uh, it's out there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Well, Janice, thanks again for joining uh, Market Impact Insights today, sharing your personal journey, sharing your experience, and giving us all optimism that uh, we will continue and we can see progress in terms of better diversification of boards and the positive impact and change that boards can drive in companies.
1: Yes, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: And a reminder to all of you, please continue giving us the gift of feedback. If you like this podcast, go out and rate and review. You can do that easily out on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And as always... Make sure to visit marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.